0: The more the world changes the more we find comfort in the things that never change this is rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network welcome welcome all you happy warriors to the rabbi daniel lapin show this is your show where your rabbi reveals how the world really works now why do i call you happy warriors why is it that most of the people who are most committed to this show um, are happy warriors and i sometimes give an introduction in which i explain what a happy warrior is in um, in some length but i will say this warrior because you are constantly engaged in a struggle you haven't signed out you're not missing in action you're not a wall you're not away without leave um, you are not retired you are in the battle the battle for what everything if you have a garden you're in a battle to stop the weeds taking over if you have a business you're in a battle for um, keeping the business profitable and growing it uh, if you have a body You're in a battle to make sure that entropy doesn't take over your body and make you slow and fat. And it is like that. Life is a thrilling, it's an exciting, it's a challenging battle. Every day we pit ourselves against dark and malign forces that resist every one of our attempts to make our life better and that's the world in which we were placed a world in which we have the opportunity to go to war every day and an opportunity to take thrill and excitement in the small victories we win one after the other little by little each little victory making the next one a little bit easier and making the overall struggles and uh, battles more uh, likely to be won and the achievements and accomplishments more sweet and so yes uh, we are warriors and uh, and we're happy because it's wonderful and exciting and thrilling to be inside of a battle of that kind And one of the things that happy warriors do and one of the things that makes us happy warriors is that we are also constantly trying to work out a blueprint of our existence. We're trying to understand a matrix that explains every detail of our lives and puts into perspective everything we grapple with, giving us, yes, a laser beam of incandescent brilliance shining onto the map and onto the landscape that uh, that helps to fill our lives with direction and purpose and meaning and um, one of the things that we need to understand one of the things that is a part of having a matrix of our existence is to understand that there are certain destructive tendencies into which we can all fall. And this is true in our business, financial lives, it's in our family lives, and it's even in our friendships. And what I'm talking about is the destructive docility. It's being destructively docile. It's the idea that somehow... Uh, Being docile and compliant is the right way for good people to be. If you're a good and decent person, if you are a God-fearing religious person, if you are somebody who believes that caring for other people is an important part of life, well, then surely being docile and compliant is a good thing but in reality it isn't and um, I'm going to give you one fantastic tip straight out of the pages of ancient Jewish wisdom um, that will enable you to deflect some of the difficulties that flow from being docile and compliant. I want to tell you why this is on my mind and that is because I got a letter from a young woman whom I know and like and have known for a number of years. And she wrote and said the following. I'm, I'm not going to uh, give her letter word for word because I don't want there to be any possibility of people in her circle who might listen to this show knowing who it is and I would uh, betray her confidentiality and uh, and let her be identified so but I, I will say uh, she is Jewish and she wrote and said uh, uh, dear rabbi and Susan I'm caught between a rock and a hard spot and then she spoke of somebody in her synagogue, who does not believe in social distancing or following any of the precautions uh, against COVID-19. And then she said that she has a family member who is in hospital and she needs to visit this family member regularly. And so um, she knew that when she comes to a hospital, as anybody who's had to visit a hospital over the last few months knows, uh, she and uh, she knew she had to answer questions at the hospital. Have you been in touch with anybody? So she just had a rule and she told all her friends she's not having people come to her house at all, because when she goes to visit this relative in the hospital, she doesn't want to have to lie or be or have uh, problems when she says yes i did have somebody in my uh, in my house so she asks people not to come to their house so um anyway she's got a friend right she she has somebody she's dating there's a, a young gentleman she's involved with um and there's also a, a long time friend of hers and this person she writes is known to uh, have no um, interest at all in the social distancing rules, etc., etc. Just the, not at all. So she writes, "This person showed up at my house uh, on Shabbat afternoon. That means Saturday afternoon. And being, she says, Shabbat, she doesn't work on the Sabbath, so she was home. She was probably taking a rest, relaxing." all of a sudden someone's at the door she opens the door and she thought it was her brother but it turns out th- it was this guy well she uh she says to, this is all in her letter to me she says um i told him you know i was i was sleeping and um i just stood talking to him at the door but he just stood there and stood there and stood there uh until finally i had no choice but i uh, allowed him in and um and then you know we 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 spoke for a while and then he invited me to come to lunch at his house the following shabbat the next saturday uh, he invited her for lunch and um and she writes now i think i made a big mistake in accepting his invitation Uh, she said this whole thing has upset the man i'm dating because he does take it seriously. And so he's upset that she spent time talking to this other guy in proximity on Shabbat afternoon and that she's accepted an invitation for the next week. And, um, and so she's, she's really upset. What should I do? Uh, this person will be very angry if I back out of his invitation. The situation is causing me great anxiety. Um, So uh, then she says, do you have any advice? So what I wrote back to her was, dear so-and-so, we have had this conversation before. Perhaps this snippet will refresh your memory. Someone's threat to amputate his finger, unless you submit to his demand, places you under no moral obligation to comply. Does that ring a bell for you? And now this is me speaking to you, happy warriors. Uh, as you can tell, she had consulted me on something fairly similar a number of years ago, in which I had then told her uh, what had happened was back then the, uh, the s- somebody uh, didn't want her to break up with him, and he implied. That uh, he might harm himself if he was left alone. And so she said, I obviously said, from a moral point of view, I have to stay with him. And so I explained to her that that's not exactly how God sees it, and that biblical wisdom on this is that uh, just because he threatens to cut off his finger or do worse doesn't mean you have to submit to the demands it really doesn't now this is a a very very important biblical principle to understand because if you think about it there are a number of ways in which even you are probably being persuaded to comply with somebody's request uh, because of what failure on your part to do so might result in Anyway, back to my response to her. Um, You wrote that you are caught between a rock and a hard spot. I have to tell you that uh, you were not caught between a rock and a hard spot. Actually, you yourself actively crawled down into a hard spot, and then you carefully and diligently reached for a rock and pulled it down against you, making sure to wedge it firmly into place and thereby locking yourself between a rock and a hard place. You see, rocks and hard spots are not malign machines that autonomously track you down. No, I'm afraid you have to own this. You created this awkward situation, right? So the real question is not just how to get out of this one, it is how to stop seeking out rocks and hard places to wiggle into in the future. But because I am the Mother Teresa of podcasting, and the Florence Nightingale of broadcasting, I am going to help you. And that was just a light-hearted um r- joke because we we do go back a bit of a while uh, re- now i'm continuing regardless of what this man let's call him mr x may believe about coronavirus and regardless of the extent to which others frown at him it is only his behavior towards you that matters so the relevant portion of your letter actually starts with him showing up unexpectedly on your doorstep he then threatened to cut off his finger unless you invited him in well actually he stood there long enough to tacitly inform you that he'd be greatly offended not to be invited in but it's the same thing of course same as cutting off threatening to cut off his finger what you did not say was hello I wish I could invite you in, I really do. But while these corona circumstances exist, and for good and specific reasons that I can't go into now, I am not going to invite you in. So have a good Shabbat, and I look forward to talking with you on the phone tonight. Instead of that, you opened your front door in wide invitation, and naturally, Mr. X sauntered serenely into your house you did it then she uh, I, I go on with a few other uh, personal matters and um uh now you worried that perhaps you made a mistake in accepting his invitation for next saturday but it doesn't matter whether it was a mistake or whether you just change your mind about wanting to go, it makes absolutely no difference. You must simply notify Mr. X by phone or by text that you regret the change in plans, but you will, after all, not be able to join him for lunch next weekend. Now, the reason you haven't already done that is because you know that Mr. X will threaten to cut off another of his remaining fingers by choosing to be unhappy offended, hurt, or angry by your change of mind. I emphasize that he is the one who chooses his reaction. None of his reactions are legitimate for a friend. But then it is not clear to me that Mr. X thinks of himself as your friend. None of his reactions are legitimate for a friend. He may be thinking of himself as, as your instructor, teacher, mentor, or controller, but not friend. Why did you even mention the sequence of events to your guy friend? Why didn't you just fix it? That was really not much more than mere gossip, was it? Hey, guess what? Mr. X came over uninvited to my house on Shabbat, and I let him in. Then he said this, and I said this, and now I'm in a fix. Are you really nothing but a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life? You write that you are afraid to tell any of your other friends in the synagogue about this, and so you should be. Afraid. (coughs) Afraid of God. Purposeless gossip is prohibited. And telling your friends this sad saga is purposeless gossip. What possible reason could you have for telling them other than hoping that somehow they'd infuse you with the necessary strength to do what your soul has already told you you must do. This does not concern your boyfriend, other than make him think less of you. This doesn't concern any of your other friends. This is only between you and Mr. X. You can solve it quite easily without the cheering reassurance that, and the encouragement of your other friends. Just do it. I know you don't slide into these predicaments in your work life, Miss So-and-So. It is so interesting to me that only in your social life you do. More than once. So now please let Mr. X know that sadly, he will have to manage without your company on Shabbat. Just do it. And let me know when it has been done. Each time you force yourself to act and react appropriately to these types of circumstances, you strengthen yourself a little bit into a better person and make it ever less likely that you'll fail again. Harsh words, but uh, perhaps only as a tribute to the wonderful person you are, as being someone capable of hearing the truth, and only as an expression of the great fondness that my wife and I feel for you. So that was our response to her. She uh, immediately wrote back the following. Excellent. And I'm doing this. I agree with you 100%. And I also don't know why it is so difficult for me socially, whereas in business, I literally never have this problem. Never. I will spend some time pondering on that i'm off to an appointment now but i will reread this again upon my return thank you so much i really get it with appreciation so and so and then one more email from her a day later rabbi i did what you told me to do and i feel 100 percent better in bold capitals the person was sore yet the person has accepted my response and will get over it i'm going to work really hard on this going forward thank you with appreciation and her name so that was the exchange and uh, uh Susan Lappin and I uh, well Susan Lappin saw the letter that I wrote to her and said um I wonder if we would find more people interested in this we should maybe run it as the ask the rabbi this weekend I said well to do that we'd have to check with her to see if she was comfortable with it and um I didn't. She said, oh, that'd be a great idea. Uh, just, you know, camouflage and make sure that my identity is not revealed. Leave out any of the things that sort of say, you know, where I am or, so you know, those things, which, of course, we did. We did conceal her identity. But um it turned out just based on the number of responses in the first few hours after its publication, it turned out to be really one of the most popular "Ask the Rabbi" columns or questions that we've done for the last few months. So you will find that on the website at rabbi dot com, Rabbi dot com, and look for "Ask the Rabbi," and you will see it plus some very interesting questions and comments from people following the, uh, the the article itself. So, okay, all very interesting. But that's not where this matter ends at all. Because we now have to take a look at a, an area that seems to be the province of uh, a, a new profession, that has shown up in the United States of America. The profession is the professional ethicist. So the ethicist tells you what's ethical and moral. However, without reference to any system, just based just out of his head. And there are a number of these people around. And I must tell you, I, whenever I read something from an ethicist, I perform the anatomically challenging task of laughing hilariously while gritting my teeth. Not easy to do, but nonetheless, I have to do it because I've taught numerous times that you must never let anybody use the phrase moral or ethical without stopping them and saying according to what system. There is no universal moral or ethical system. Huge numbers of Muslims will tell you that it is moral and ethical to engage in terror bombings and blowing up uh, cafes of tourists in Tel Aviv. Uh, They will tell you, others will tell you it is moral and ethical to cut the throat of an American airline stewardess uh, before taking over the plane and ramming it into a building and killing thousands of innocent people. Um, Those people did not come in for universal indictment. No, because within certain systems, that is a moral and ethical action to take. There is no universally accepted moral system or ethical system. And so it is uh, somewhat presumptuous on the part of a so-called ethicist to tell you this is what is ethical or this is what is moral. And so, with that little uh, um, introduction, I will now tell you about something that is claimed to be the height of your moral and ethical obligations, but based on what we've so far learned from the lady who wrote this question, you will see that it is a lot more complicated, but in terms of being subjected to moral blackmail and by and to ethical compulsion, that is something that uh, causes a lot of trouble in married couples. And so, whether it is your spouse, or whether it is a friend, or whether it is a business associate, very often uh, things will be told to you. You need to get this done. By such and such a time, yes, I know it's five o'clock in the afternoon, but you need to get it done because if you don't, um, you know, whatever, somebody's going to be very unhappy or this is going to, and very often, uh, it is not a legit, now there may be perfectly good reasons if, if you have an ongoing relationship with your business or your associates, I'm not saying you don't sometimes go beyond the call of duty, but, um, uh, sometimes a spouse will set up a pattern of behaviour that, if you react a certain way, the spouse then um, reacts predictably. Sometimes guys will do this; they'll become cold and stony and glacial and icy. Um, sometimes women uh, cry. You know, just two stereotypical behaviours, and um, and and so. You are on the receiving end of this kind of uh, moral and ethical compulsion. And you feel, you know, I suppose, I mean, I have to really comply. Otherwise, uh, he'll start crying or she'll withdraw and become icy and glacial. Yes, I know I reversed the genders there. Uh, And you don't. Well, let me give you one hugely valuable clue. And if you hear only one thing today, this should be it. Um, don't say things like, you always do this, or you are trying to force me, or you are doing this, or you are doing that, because that uh, stimulates, particularly in men, an almost inevitable and uh, unavoidable uh, denial and uh, resistance. There are two magical words that have to be dropped in here, and those words are, I feel... I feel that three words, Okay, that changes everything, because if my wife says um, you're I, you know, you always do this. If I if I don't agree, you're going to go off and become stony and cold and remote and distant from me for the next two days. and I don't like living like that. So I feel I have to do this is what you always do. Then I my response is, no, I don't always do that. Uh, you know and I'll, I'll quote and i'll say last wednesday you asked me to do it. i did the, the, last thursday you did on monday you asked me i did i don't always you wrong about that and then we're off to an argument but if i put the words i feel that instead it changes everything she now says you know i feel that you often uh, react by going distant on me and i say oh i don't do that and you say yeah I, now maybe you don't, but it's a feeling I have. Now the nice thing about saying I feel that is that nobody has to dispute how you feel. And by saying I feel that, you are even opening yourself to the possibility that it is a, a wrong feeling. You shouldn't have those feelings, or maybe you should because what the person is doing is exactly the, designed to cause that feeling. So. All of a sudden, you can have a much more civilized and a much more harmonious, peaceful conversation if you just do that, if you just make it an I feel. And I'll tell you more about that. But uh, remember the technique of putting the words, I feel that before you say you always do that. I feel that you always do that. Now we still have a conversation going uh, and I have to show you the example that is increasingly being forced, not only on individuals, but even on entire countries using a form of moral blackmail uh, that is way more common uh, than you'd expect. So join me, if you will, on a small excursion into the mind of Professor Peter Singer. Professor Peter Singer was born in Australia and he is currently a professor of ethics at Melbourne University in that great country of Australia, and he is also a professor of ethics at Princeton University in New Jersey in the United States of America. So he is an ethicist. He is Jewish, he is a secular Jew, and he claims to be have been influenced by, among others, Karl Marx. And he is going to now decree what is ethical and what is moral. And a foolish nation in thrall to credentialism and expertitis falls at at his feet and prostrates themselves ready to be told what is moral and what is ethical by Professor Peter Singer. Now, if you detect any sound of skepticism in my voice, well, this would be because I am familiar with many of the moral pronouncements of Professor Singer, um, and I won't go into all of them now. Um, some of them have to do with uh, ending the lives of children he considers to be not that much utility to society uh doing away with elderly people which by the way uh when he was asked by a reporter about whether that would include his mother uh he <laughs> being as she was in the audience um he was uh, he, he demonstrated a, a very entertaining discomfort at that but uh what i'm more interested in at the moment is that Uh, Professor Singer states, and states regularly, that it is um, immoral, it might, well let me be accurate, it might be immoral to be a billionaire if you do not spend time figuring out the best places to give it away. So if you are a billionaire who earned your money through Honest Enterprise, you are already immoral in the eyes of professor singer simply by being a billionaire and not devoting yourself to giving it away he says explicitly that to die a billionaire is completely immoral and uh, that is really rather remarkable because he is laying claim to deciding what is moral and what is not and to my astonishment in the audience before whom he made that shocking statement, there was nobody who challenged him and said, "Excuse me, on what basis? Like, who are you to decree what is moral or not?" Right? That'd be absurd as me telling you what's moral and what isn't. The only conversation worth having is to talk about what God considers immoral, and there is certainly no indication in his message to mankind that uh, acquiring wealth of any quantity is immoral. So, I'm I'm amused by Professor Singer's uh, arbitrary demarcation of a billion dollars as making the difference. How about a man who has $990 million and who doesn't spend time giving it away? Now, uh, at other times in my work, I have spoken about the fact that nobody needs to justify having made money by giving it away. We business professionals, we are not like 17th century pirates of the Caribbean, who after a lengthy, happy career of pillage and plunder and robbing and raping, uh, we decide to buy our way back into respectable society by endowing a new church or building a public building in Kingston, Jamaica. That's how it used to be. And then when they had paid their price to society, in other words, giving back to society, well, guess what? Then they were welcomed at the best parties in the Caribbean. Well, that may be pirates, but that's not business professionals, because the secret of the business professional is that his money and all about it is not about what he might do with it. That's none of our business. It's about what he did to get the money. And that's the crucial thing. Uh, Whichever billionaire you're talking about, whether it's Bill Gates, among the the most uh, famous or one of the lesser known. Uh, and there may be exceptions. I mean, I don't know much about what Russian oligarchs did to uh, become billionaires, and there are a number of them. Uh, I don't know what they've done. But generally speaking, in the West, uh, a billionaire became a billionaire because he persuaded you to voluntarily part with your money and give it to him. And the reason you did that was because what he offered you in exchange was worth considerably more to you than the money he required you to give him. So whether it was buying software or a computer, or whether it was buying tickets to a sporting event or any of the other hundreds and hundreds of ways that enterprising individuals try to improve the lives of their fellow human beings and thereby earn themselves a profit, it doesn't matter. And there is therefore, and this is, I I cannot emphasize this strongly enough, nobody else has a claim on your money. There isn't such a thing. And regardless of how many universities Professor Singer has a chair of professorship at, he still has no right to tell any billionaire that being a billionaire and not giving it away makes him an immoral person it's outrageous. It's preposterous. It's hilarious. And it becomes really important for us to understand this, as you'll see. Now, hang along with me here, because I'm showing you extreme examples of moral blackmail, extreme examples of decreeing what you should be doing. And they may be extreme, but you are either doing this to other people, or other people are doing it to you, or both, because this kind of behavior has become increasingly common in the world today. This idea of telling other people what is moral and what isn't, and even if it is nothing more than yelling at somebody in a market because they don't have a mask over their face sufficiently tightly in place to satisfy you— uh, you may well be one of the people nah, impossible. No listener of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show would ever uh, go up to a stranger and tell them they're not wearing their mask correctly. No happy warrior would do such a thing. I think it takes a particularly miserable kind of entitled human being uh, to feel that that's OK to go and, and do that. Uh, this gross violation of manners that are so important to lubricate human interaction And so uh, let's continue with just one more Professor Peter Singer example so that this can all become clear. Peter Singer talks often of a sad case that occurred in China a few years ago where uh, street surveillance cameras, which I gather proliferate in China, uh, caught a van knocking over a little girl running over her and several other pedestrians walking around her and ignoring her until finally uh, somebody stopped and got her to a hospital where unfortunately she died. And so Peter Singer says to the audience, like, this is horrifying, right? It's it's uh, you don't even want to look at the security camera footage. It's so awful. And I'm sure, says Peter Singer, that all of you sitting here today, if you had been on that street and you saw that little girl lying there you surely would go over and pick her up and get her to a hospital and he even then says would you raise your hands if you agree and obviously everybody in the audience dutifully raises their hands yes we would go along if we witnessed that we would take the little girl to hospital then he continues and he says well uh, i got news for you um several million little children die every year around the country, and he quotes statistics from a very problematic United Nations agency called UNICEF, and and he says, see, there are millions of children dying of starvation around the world every year, and you are all sitting here doing absolutely nothing, and you see what he's doing. And then he, u- he usually stops at that point, and uh, he, he says, there's no difference between the two, is there? And he doesn't even pause, because to him, it is so obvious that walking on by and ignoring a little girl that's just been knocked over in front of you on the street is exactly the same as not sending money to UNICEF, and that's what he's encouraging you to do. He also, by the way, uh, apropos of the previous section having to do with Peter Singer deciding what kind of billionaires are moral and what kind aren't and determining that only those who are figuring out how to give away all their money, all their money before they die, uh, are moral billionaires. He said it would be a much more moral society if it was impossible to become a billionaire and that all that money Was given to tax. That's right. This kind of childlike faith in government, a faith that the founders of the United States of America most decidedly did not possess, that kind of faith has Peter Singer in government because he says he'd much rather live in a country where it's impossible to become a billionaire and all that money goes to taxes to solve problems like homelessness and climate change. Now, uh, we will leave aside for the moment uh, Peter Singer's conception of how money that is not made by the billionaire will somehow gravitate towards the tax coffers of uh, the country. Uh, You see, we give money, Mr. Professor Singer, we give our money to uh, if you like bill gates because we like using windows software or microsoft software that's why we do it but we don't like giving money to the government because we get very limited value out of that a large part of well i was going to start telling you about some of the expenses i've discovered The Center for Disease Control, the CDC, has spent just recently, uh, the CDC has spent millions of dollars on studies, by the way. And so you know where that money ends up. The The Center for Disease Control in charge of the whole coronavirus crisis. Well, they've spent millions of tax dollars on prevention of gun violence, Remember, I did a show uh, a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, about how dangerous is the idea of public health, that when you make public health the number one priority, well, then there is nothing you cannot regulate, there's nothing you cannot prohibit, there's nothing you cannot bring under the control of government. And so, Uh, Center for Disease Control, gun violence. Well, yes, public health, right? If every time somebody takes a bullet, that's a public health issue, surely. The CDC uh, did another multi-million dollar study on how parents should discipline children. I don't remember asking for information from the CDC or from the government on that. Um, They've done uh, studies on chronic health conditions among the lesbian, gay and bisexual population. Um they spent, uh, in one year, they spent $215 million on environmental health. They spent $285 million on injury prevention. The reason I'm indignant about this is because there are other government agencies for every single one of those issues. They didn't have to be out of the CDC. So that's why it makes me um, perform an anatomically challenging feat of both gritting my teeth and laughing hilariously uh, when Professor Singer says, no, that money uh, shouldn't go to billionaires, which he assumes it just goes there by some kind of autonomous magic, but instead it should go to the taxes of the government to solve the problems of homelessness and climate change. That's how it works. Well back to the the little girl on the street in China and Professor Singer now challenging us all and saying well for you to not give money away to UNICEF so as to stop all those other little children dying it's the same thing and if you are willing to do something about the child knocked over in front of you on the street in China then surely you should be willing to do something now to stop all those other children dying and he basically does everything except pass around the collection plate because the church of peter singer the church of public ethics and morality is alive and well and very much a part of the church of secular fundamentalism the official faith of the government of the united states of america And many other countries, particularly in Europe as well, very much what's going on. And so this is now a way of blackmailing us all. You know, how dare you have a sauna in your backyard while there are thousands of children dying somewhere right at this minute? And for many people, this actually becomes a problem. And Peter Singer actually manages to persuade this is where it gets really dangerous he manages to persuade government agencies that this is correct and in his world view it is appropriate for the united states government to impose heavier and heavier taxes on its citizens in order to be able to send more money to the united nations for this purpose i should tell you by the way that because I've been making a study of, this is just for my own edification, I've been making a study of government statistics and numbers lately, and I've seen the amazing distortion of figures, uh, it, it it is, to me, a matter of great skepticism. The UNICEF figures of how many children are dying around the world, I don't believe them. I just don't believe those figures. I don't think every child in the world um, has exactly the same kind of lifestyle as the child of a a decadent family in Beverly Hills, California. I'm not saying that. But the notion that uh, these huge numbers of children are just dying, I don't think that's correct. Uh, I do believe it's a distortion, and I do believe it's part of a methodical theft program Of UNICEF. In other words, if you're in the business of collecting money for hungry children, well, then guess what? No matter what it takes, you will produce figures that show lots and lots of hungry children. You may even produce photographs, you may produce graphs, but whatever it is, you will do it, guaranteed. And that mechanism. Uh, is one that we see at work in every country, almost every country that I've looked at and become aware of, uh, where uh, whether it's nonprofits, whether it's NGOs, or whether it's government agencies, uh, they will, if not aggravate the problem actively themselves, they will certainly amplify and exaggerate it in order to justify the amount of money they wish to have available to spend on. it. Now, you don't have to think and or worry that uh, it's all this money is going to end up in the hands of the poor wouldn't that be like something no don't forget a whole lot of it has to go towards studies and uh, you know where that money ends up obviously so that's that's kind of how this game works but the bottom line is a great deal of moral blackmail going on These are huge projects of moral blackmail. These are nefarious escapades on a grand scale, obviously very different from what happens in your life and in mine. But it's as well to understand the principle going on here and important to understand that no, uh, UNICEF doesn't have a right to your money. You are not immoral not to give it and uh, neither are you immoral uh, for refusing to break into your billion dollars in order to do whatever professor singer thinks you ought to do and i want to explain why this is you see the bible makes it abundantly clear that you have exclusive rights over your possessions over your assets over your money Now that comes with obligations to give some of it away, but I am sure that you hear me very clearly. There is a huge difference between saying somebody else has a right to my money and saying I have an obligation to give some of my money away. And so the latter is true. I have an obligation to give 10% to charity. I have. There's a 10%. Okay, fine. Uh, That obligation is on me, so much so that I personally think of myself as being an employee of God who lets me work on a 90% commission. 10% is his. All right, I get that. What do I do with that? Do I wait until people knock on my door and tell me they're here to collect their 10%? No. No. And that's the beauty of the system. Nobody has the right to my money. Nobody. I have an obligation to give some of it away. And I get to choose the recipient. And so there isn't such a thing as saying that a billionaire is immoral. Because if a billionaire gives away 10% of his income like everybody else, he is perfectly moral. Absolutely. And the notion that he has to give proportionately more because he has a lot. That's also without basis. 10% is 10%. Regressive taxation is what it's called because progressive taxation means the more money you have, the higher your marginal rate goes. Not appropriate, not correct, and not moral in real absolute terms. It is also very important important to understand another moral principle and that is that I have a higher obligation to those human beings who are closest to me this is very important because it says that there is a huge difference between walking down the road and seeing a little girl needing a hospital and reading in a newspaper or in a United Nations pamphlet that there are a thousand little girls in Bangladesh or in Somalia that are starving. That, that is there There is a difference. Uh, geographic proximity and family proximity are very important. And so there are concentric circles. If you think of a target or of a dartboard there are concentric circles of moral obligation again i stress nobody else has a right to your money nobody but you do have an obligation to give some of it away and you have an obligation to uh, spend a portion of it on the needy where first of all in your area so If you have family members who need help, that would be an appropriate first charitable obligation for your 10% of charitable uh, revenue. And if everyone in your family is okay, then you would look at people in your neighborhood, people who live in your neighborhood, you would give them before you gave people in another city. And when all of them are taken care of you, then look for people in your town or your city and then people in your country. That's right. There is a higher moral obligation to give to those who are closer to you than to those further away. It's very interesting that human nature being what it is and that our creator uh, issued us with a manufacturer's manual. It helps us understand some of our most confusing and perplexing motivations. It's very interesting that we human beings, for the most part, there are some wonderful exceptions, but for the most part, most of us feel it easier to act warmly and chivalrously and compassionately towards strangers than to, shall we say, our siblings. And that is just a reality. And it's not an accident that we are told in the fundamental Ten Commandments to honor our mother and our father, because that does not come naturally. Ever since we're little kids, we tend to think that little Johnny's mom and dad are much cooler than ours. We've always felt that, and we continue feeling that. And uh, this ambivalence towards those who are closest to us um, is uh, something that a lot of people spend money with therapists on talking about my brother my sister my mother my father you don't know what they did you don't know what they're like and the therapist with his mind a million miles away happen, happily pockets your check at the end of every session uh, having listened to you go on about your relatives yes and so not surprisingly because part of what the good lord wants is to help uh, help us overcome our lower natures, since I would much rather be seeing myself as a noble person who feeds the starving orphans in the uh, teeming ghettos of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, much rather do that than make sure that my own brother has enough. And this is how we are created. So, not surprisingly, The uh, Bible rule is our moral obligation is greatest to those who are closest. So right there is a refutation of Professor Peter Singer's Triumphal conclusion where he says, So you see, you were willing to help the little girl on the street in front of you who got knocked over. Surely now you'd be willing to reach into your pocket and take the money that you were planning. And he says this by the way you were planning on buying a nice car with 12 cylinders and leather seats. Well, don't get a very basic garb, get a Ford Focus, and that difference send to the United Nations to take care of all the little starving children in whatever, wherever it is they're focused on. So, go ahead and happily make a billion dollars, knowing that you made it by supplying your fellow human beings with the things they needed or wanted or desired, and therefore, every one of those billion dollars in your bank account serves as a certificate of good performance. They basically attest to your morality. You didn't confiscate that money from anybody. You didn't take it by force from anybody. You allowed human beings to voluntarily exchange money for what you were doing to improve their lives. And so... Yes, you have an obligation to give away 10% of that, but that's none of my business. I can't knock on your door and say I'm here for my 10% or me and my nine friends, we've come here, we're each looking for 1%. No, go away. <laughs> that's, that's nonsense. I will choose the people I wish to have as the recipients of my largesse. That's how it is. One of the very few exceptions is found in the book of Ruth and elsewhere, and that is called the gleaning. This is a rule that a farmer has to leave the corners, small corners of his field, uh, for poor people to come and gather and pick up Uh, corn or wheat literally in order to survive in order to eat and in the book of ruth in the bible we see that uh, naomi sends her daughter-in-law ruth to glean in the fields of boaz and there the farmer does not have the right to say uh, you may come to my field you may not Uh, that is open to anybody who wants to come and very strict uh, boundaries and so on obviously they can't denude the field but uh in the section that is set aside for the poor and the reason it's the corners by the way is because in most farming whether it is modern industrialized farming or even if you're plowing and harvesting with a horse you basically swing a curve when you're going along one edge of the field and then you turn 90 degrees you turn And for most of the farmers, it's not worth the extra labor to go back and make sure you get the last little bit in the corner. You turn a curve and that leaves the corners unharvested and they shouldn't go to waste and and just rot there in the field. They are available for poor people to come and anybody who wants to come uh, is entitled to do that right there. So I hope that you are as a result of what we're talking about today, I hope you're going to be immune to this kind of uh, moral and ethical blackmail. And uh, in in its most widely practiced form, it is this idea that as long as poverty exists, you have no right to your wealth. Um, it's 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 tragic how extensively this is believed and how such. A falsehood is widely accepted, but n- other people's need places no obligation on you. You see how we're coming back to the young lady uh, who was pressured by a gentleman who knocked on her door? It's very similar. He said, I have a need to come in and speak to you. I don't want to go away. I want to speak. And she felt that his need overrode her preference and placed an inescapable moral obligation upon her shoulders and that's exactly the same as what many people will will practice today do you have any idea of how great the need is here there or everywhere um surely surely you're not going to turn your back on this look my answer is there's a lot of need everywhere the need itself places zero obligation on me I have an obligation to give away a certain amount. I also have a a right to choose to whom to give it. Uh, I can give a... Or a quarter to many, many, many different organizations, or I can choose to give it away completely differently. I might choose to not give anything to an organization, or I might prefer to give it to an end recipient, uh, a needy individual himself, a family. I might do any of those things. But the fact that there is vast need out there does not. Place a moral obligation on my shoulders. And that is important to understand because that need out there takes so many different forms. And it is so easy. Uh, for people to, uh, to exploit that and use that. And yes, it can happen in marriages, but we've also got to be understanding of the fact that there are very real needs in a marriage. There are real needs that a wife has. There are real needs that a husband has. And to simply say, well, I feel that you are pressuring me with your need, not not quite so simple things things don't work quite like that in a marriage and when i discuss marriage at greater length i will go into some of the practical details of that but even in those conversations that take place within the privacy of a couple uh, using the phrase i feel that you is much better than starting off by saying you 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 know what you did you did I feel that you did this. Now, I may be wrong. You know, maybe I'm just oversensitive, but that's the feeling I'm getting from what you're doing. Can, let's talk about that. And all of a sudden, it's not a condemnation. It's not an accusation. I don't have to get defensive and uh, the, the uh, hopefully peace is restored, harmony and tranquility r- are regained and happiness between husband and wife comes back once again that is the whole idea in that context uh, back to the idea of marriage and two books that are available specially for listeners of this show right now at our website Lappen.com. you will see them there and take a look at them they may be very suitable if not for you then somebody in your orbit uh, the first one is entitled and it's a long title I only want to get married once dating secrets for getting it right the first time and uh, this you know the title says exactly what it is uh you only have one shot at a first marriage and whilst i certainly know a number of of wonderful second marriages and even two third marriages generally speaking uh, the odds are not as good as on a first marriage as you know you'd understand by the way Uh, the odds when widows and widowers marry far far better than when uh, divorces marry just I'm just looking at the statistics and that's just how it is doesn't mean that any particular person is doomed to failure of course not but I only want to get married once is a nice book and and one that um, certainly should be recommended and I just realized that I coached a young man uh, today, a young man I'm helping, who is very successful in business, and um, is starting to think seriously of getting married, and it's it's really interesting the the kind of mistakes that people make. And I, um, I'm not going to talk about them in the context of that conversation right now, because he happens to be a listener of this show, and I certainly don't want him to be um, uncomfortable. But during our conversation, obviously, uh, I told him exactly what some of the issues were, things, some of the things he'd done wrong. And I will tell you all about it in another podcast where I'm not linking it to anybody specific. The second book that is available is Hands Off, This May Be Love, and this is a very interesting book because it flies against today's conventional wisdom, right? The way people are accustomed to dating today is that uh, they go through a sequence of relationships of varying degrees of intimacy. And they eventually end, and they go to another one, and they're constantly looking for that one right person, not realizing that it's not a case of luck, Um, it's a case of decision. And uh, also not realizing that physical intimacy actually diminishes the likelihood of making a smart decision. It's paradoxical, because on the one hand, the good Lord created such a reliable system Uh, to ensure the survival of humanity, that uh, it becomes almost unbearably impossible for a young man getting to know a young woman and for the two of them to keep their hands off each other. (laughs) It's, it's, It's almost impossible. God designed it that way. And yet, nonetheless, paradoxically, yielding to that impulse makes the likelihood of a wise decision far less. All of that is covered in this book called Hands Off, This May Be Love, God's Gift for Establishing Enduring Relationships. So uh, both of those really good for somebody in your orbit who is thinking of getting married, looking to become serious about it, dating right now, uh, all of them at RabbiDanielLappin.com. You just go to the store. And then you'll be able to read more about, I only want to get married once, and hands off, this may be love. So uh, do do that, and I think you will find that uh, you are getting something of considerable value, and uh, I'll be happy if that is the case. Uh, Okay, then I've also got to tell you one more thing. Uh, You know, I I have a love-hate relationship with the late psychiatrist Sigmund Freud, And uh, there are a lot of problems that I have with him. I I think that on many levels, well, why didn't I just, uh, I was going to say on many levels, uh, he was a a fraud and uh, and, uh, fabricating complete nonsense. But uh, again, because of credentialism and expertitis, uh, once the once he had been appointed a professor at the university and he achieved status in Germany, uh, people people bought. And, you know, when everybody is listening to whatever you say as if you are Moses coming down with the tablets, uh, the temptation to let loose and uh, become creative and remove any constraints of your discipline uh, become probably quite irresistible. And uh, the same was certainly true of Freud, but why do I have a love hate relationship because he gave the most remarkable lectures doesn't mean they were all true doesn't mean they were right but uh, he was a scintillating lecturer and people who heard him speak spoke of that for me all I can do is read and he has the he's, he has lectures on psychoanalysis and number 35 I was looking at this week and I've got to tell you there's something in there that I'm going to read to you I don't often read to you because I don't think that it's particularly interesting to listen to somebody reading to you but uh, in this case I think it's really worth it Um I've spoken in the past about uh, the whole idea of understanding how the world really works That's what we do on this show. What am I doing? I'm making ancient Jewish wisdom accessible to people of every background in the areas that really matter, family and finance and friendships and faith and physical health and so on, Uh, all of these basic important things. And the idea is that uh, through this, you get a clearer and clearer understanding of the world as it surrounds you and in which you live and in which you function and you make fewer and fewer mistakes and you make better more and more right decisions and life is good and you enjoy good times so um so um, he is talking about psychoanalysis and he's saying oh psychoanalysis provides you with this complete picture of everything and the word he uses for it is a word with which I'm very familiar. The world, it's a German word, and it's Weltanschauung. Weltanschauung. What it means literally is world view, a world perspective. I'm familiar with it because uh, I studied a little bit of German. My father studied German and used certain German words. And uh, when you understand the usage of the word Weltanschauung, um, in German, it sort of becomes a, a very apt word, if that's exactly the thought you're trying to articulate. Um, Worldview or world perspective is okay, but neither of them quite capture the same degree. And I was thinking if, if I had to tell you, you know, what a definition of Weltanschauung is, I'd probably, I'd probably work at it for a while, you know, writing it up. And sure enough, Uh, Here is Freud in lecture number 35, and I'm reading this to you now. Weltanschauung is, I'm afraid, a specifically German notion which would be difficult to translate into a foreign language. If I attempt to give you a definition of the word, it can hardly fail to strike you as inept. By Weltanschauung, then, I mean an intellectual construction— which gives a unified solution of all the problems of our existence in virtue of a comprehensive hypothesis, a construction, therefore, in which no question is left open and which everything in which we are interested finds a place. It is easy to see that the possession of such a Weltanschauung is one of the ideal wishes of mankind. When one believes in such a thing, one feels secure in life. One knows what one ought to strive after and how one ought to organize one's emotions and interests to the best purpose. My friends, I could not have improved on that. That is absolutely terrific. And um, and I think definitely worth being aware of. Um, I think if it's not too long, I might put it in the description of today's show. By the way, he goes on further on in that, uh, in that particular lecture number 35 um, to, to, dry, to, to drive me and goad me to a fury. <laughs> so when I say it's a love-hate relationship and why it is that, uh, that and I, I have those joint reactions to Sigmund Freud, it's because a definition like that i just love and i think to myself what a guy and then a few pages later he says something like this of the three forces which can dispute the position of science religion alone is a really serious enemy and here he goes on about religion displaying such abysmal ignorance and so little (laughs) understanding Um, And and this is simply a case. I've discovered that uh, people who are of Jewish ancestry and who become aggressively secular uh, become almost rabidly incomprehensible in their feverish and fanatical fury at religion. Um, There are a number of people like that. The late Christopher Hitchens was an example. Uh, You may not have known that he was Jewish, but uh, he actually shared that with me in person on one of the occasions we met before his passing. Um, uh, uh, Peter Singer, whom I quoted earlier in today's show, is in that category. And of course, uh, well, Karl Marx, needless to say, and of course, in fact, uh, Sigmund Freud. So that is everything uh, we're going to go as far as on today. Uh, do tell anyone you think who would enjoy the show. Please make them familiar with it. I appreciate that. Uh, make sure you go on to It's a good place to write to me. Uh, if you want to um, have arrangements start being made to have me come and speak for your organization or your church, then you would do that at the website, Rabbi Lapin as well. And take a look at the two books, I Only Want to Get Married Once, and hands off. This may be love. Both of them at the store section on RabbiDanielLappin.com. Thanks so much for being part of the show. I really appreciate the time spent together with you. I love the comments that you submit in response to the thought to the uh, the uh, the podcast I do, and I really read them. And as many of you have discovered, I actually respond to a fair number of them as well. I want to wish you a terrific week until we are together again for the next show. And I wish you a week of good times with your finances, your friendships, your family, your faith, and yes, the new F, your physical fitness. Thanks so much and God bless. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Filling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network.